This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, and this is one of our favorites. Much of what's known about legendary NFL quarterback Brett Favre has been kept between the goalposts. So our own Greg Hengler took the three-and-a-half-hour-long drive from right where we broadcast in Oxford, Mississippi, and that's in northern Mississippi, close to Memphis, and he sat down with Brett Favre in his Hattiesburg, Mississippi home. And by the way, Greg grew up a mere walking distance, almost spitting distance, from Lambeau Field in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Here's Brett with his story. Well, my mom and dad are both from the Gulf Coast. My dad's from Gulfport. My mother was from Pass Christian, which probably doesn't mean anything to you, but right on the beach. And my dad grew up not far from the beach. Gulfport's kind of right in the smack dab in the middle of the Gulf Coast, Mississippi Gulf Coast. So if you, as you came down from Oxford, you eventually got on 49. Mm -hmm. If you'd take 49 all the way till you can't take it no more, you would be in Gulfport. So that's where he grew up. My mom and dad met at uh, Mississippi Gulf Coast Junior College. My dad played baseball and football there. And then they dated, eventually got married. I think they got married while they were at Southern Miss. So they left junior college, came here. My dad played baseball. Then they started having kids. My older brother, Scott, is two and a half years older than me. We all were born in Gulfport, Gulfport Memorial Hospital. So there's Scott, me, my younger brother, Jeff, and our youngest is Brandy, our sister. And I'm going to fast forward a little bit. My mom, her mother and father owned a restaurant bar in, in Pastor But We practically grew up there. My grandfather died in 78. And I actually remember a lot about him. I was seven or eight. I was born in 69. When he died, my grandmother just, she kept, the, and it was called Benny French's Tavern after my grandfather. We practically grew up there because when he died, my mom and dad would help my grandmother tend bar. And we had the whole place to ourselves pretty much. There was pool tables and pinball and people get in there getting get drunk. Well, we were drinking like little bottle Cokes, which were the best, eating all the sweets. And um, my gr- grandmother was awesome. She was the, the best. Staying with her was the coolest thing. Mississippi Gulf Coast is a lot like New Orleans. It never closes. We grew up Catholic. Everyone on the Gulf Coast is Catholic. So there's there's parties for everything. There's festivals, there's rodeos, there's you know cook-offs, parades. Growing up in that, that lifestyle, we went to Mardi Gras parades. My mom and dad would drink, but I, I, don't, I don't remember them like ever getting like, we always were with them. So like we, they didn't like drop us off and then they go. Ironically, throughout high school, I never drank. My older brother, I think he may have drank a little bit, but we were, we were in athlete, athletics. My dad's mother and father lived in Gulfport, were polar opposite of my grand, grandmother on my mom's side. 
I stayed with them one time, and and that was one too many. They they said good night, 5:30, still daylight. One went to one bedroom, one went to the other bedroom, and I loved my dad's mother and father, but they were boring. You know, I knew Scott was up playing pool or doing whatever. But at 18, my mom told me that she was adopted. Um, I played summer league baseball. My dad was a baseball and football coach. And I was actually 17. And I was driving. My dad was already at the, it was a summer league. It was like American Legion baseball. We were down on the coast. I was driving my mom. And it was just us two. And she just felt the need to, to tell me that she was adopted. And she was all upset, worried that I wouldn't, we called my grandmother Meemaw. She was worried that I wouldn't look at Meemaw the same. When actually, I looked at her even more fondly. Like, I, I just couldn't believe she could be that great of a mom, and it wasn't even her, her daughter. But I, I, I only bring that up because I don't know a whole lot about my mom's actual biological family. But my mom's biological mother worked for my grandmother and grandfather at the bar restaurant because he, my grandfather was, believe it or not, 25 years older than my grandmother. And this girl was pregnant, mom's mother, and didn't want the baby. And they said they'd take it. So she had a baby, dropped it off, and was gone. That was it. And what the only thing she knows about her father is that he played professional baseball. I don't even know if she, she, if she knows the name, she never said. So, uh, kind of interesting. In my dad's family, my grandfather was 100% Choctaw Indian. And they, his family were from Oklahoma, like a big reservation up there. But yeah, growing up, my, my dad was a driver's ed teacher and head football coach at Hancock North Central. Now it's Hancock County High School. My mom was a special education teacher there. First through 12th was right all together. It was a real small school, graduated 100. So we all rode, rode to school together, rode home together, except for football during football. I, didn't, I never thought we were rich, but we had a pool, so I thought we gotta be doing something right. But I think that combined, they made $44,000. And I know people do that and get by, but uh, it's amazing how you can, and four kids, and when they called us to the dinner table, I'd eat 12 hot dogs if I could. And, and so would everyone else. So, you know, I say all that, but like, how in the world did y'all make it? And you've been listening to Brett Favre telling his own life story. My goodness, as a kid thinking, boy, we got a pool. We must be doing something right. And I thought the same thing. My dad was a teacher. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. They worked part-time jobs. I had a swimming pool, and I got to play with my friends. Life was good. When we come back, more Brett Favre and his own life story, in his own words, as we always do here on Our American Story.
And we continue here with Our American Stories and Brett Favre telling his story. And my goodness, what an impressive thing Brett Favre's Meemaw did with his own mother, adopting a total stranger's baby. And his mother had worried that maybe he'd look differently at his own grandma, but of course he did. He respected her even more for that choice. And now let's continue with the story of Brett Favre. I go to the grocery store all the time. In fact, I'll probably go like this when we wrap up. And I'm gluten-free, so I may get gluten-free bread, a couple other things, almond milk or some yogurt or something. And it's like $100. And every time I check out, I go, how in the world did my mom and dad make it? Uh, you know, I know it was a little cheaper back then, but still. So anyway, I grew up playing baseball and football. Just my older brother did the same. My younger brother did the same. My older brother had a scholarship to Mississippi State as a quarterback. He played a year. He transferred to, back to JUCO. They ran the wishbone. He's a little scrawny white kid. He said, you know, I need to go somewhere else. And he ended up playing two years of JUCO, went to, to Delta State on a scholarship. Went through spring practice, was a starting quarterback, came home, said, I've had enough. I just don't want to play anymore. And he came to Southern Miss and enrolled as just a student, which was my freshman year. So we were there at the same time. My younger brother, he played at Southern Miss as well. Actually played defensive back. And growing up down, there was always something going on. You know, when people, when I, I tell them, it, it was, when I was still drinking, which I quit drinking in 98, if you would have asked me in 97, do you ever think you'll stop drinking? I'd have said no. That's just the way we were raised. I, I, and part of it was true, but, I mean, you can get in trouble anywhere, but the temptation to just go boil, you know, a pot of crawfish and drink a bunch of beer and not come home until 3 in the morning is always there. In saying that, we moved from the coast up here. Now, my wife, she went to school here. My wife, we grew up together. She was a year ahead of me, but I knew her ever since uh, first grade. In fact, that I don't know if that was a door or what, but she may be coming in. But yeah, so we've known each other. She played basketball. She played softball. She was a good, really good athlete. And when we started dating, I was in the ninth grade, and we would throw the baseball together. And she, now she she couldn't catch the football like if I threw, but she could catch the baseball. And I thought it was pretty cool because we could throw back and forth. And I could heat it up. She could catch it. Uh, I, th I was like, this is pretty cool. She went to uh, Pearl River Junior College, played. Uh, basketball and then later came Southern Miss we have two daughters and we have three grandsons nine five and two our oldest daughter is 31 she got a law degree from Loyola doesn't use it That's I, it is normal I, you know I, I was hoping to break that our youngest is uh, a junior playing volleyball at Southern Miss she quit indoor. Oh, yeah, she doing beach? She's just doing beach. Cool. Which is a, a lot more fun to watch. It really is. 
we hate it that she quit indoor but and I hate to because my dad was a coach and I, I coached two years myself so I, a lot of times people want to blame the coach but 10 girls quit the indoor team the girl the woman doesn't coach I mean it's just it's I she sits over there and she just she's like miserable never would like let's work on this today or spend give me my daughter's one that unlike me and unlike Deanna really she needs someone to tell her I, I need your best let's give me 15 minutes after practice and and let's work on this you know she needs someone to to talk to her that way and encourage her the more someone didn't talk to me the more I dug my heels in and just I'll show them she's not like that my childhood I mean I'm if I wasn't playing baseball I was playing football that's all the only two I played and I was actually a better baseball player than I was a football I went to Southern Miss that you know baseball they don't really give they give partial scholarships it they don't get full scholarships fortunately I got a full scholarship the only offer I got was to Southern Miss and I was gonna play both in fact I really thought if I had a sh if, if someone if you were to say which one do you think you have a better shot at playing professional I'd have said baseball by far we never threw it in high school we ran the wishbone I, I mean I could throw it further and harder than anyone but that's all I knew so uh, even though I was pretty confident in my ability I didn't foresee coming here and starting as a true freshman and more luck than anything a couple of guys got hurt a couple of guys played bad they had moved one of the guys to the receiver and lo and behold I was next in line and I could have screwed it up very easily could have screwed it up because I didn't know the plays. It's funny because I came in against Tulane in the th second game of my true freshman year. We were down 17-3. We were looking awful. And I was nervous. I was a little bit unsure. I, I knew I could play, but putting everything together, calling the play, and that was back when they signaled in and you know I I hadn't been on the team very long and, and I wasn't like getting all the reps I wasn't getting any reps so I did all the guys in the off in the huddle were like five-year seniors and it's funny we end up coming back and winning um, broken plays yeah, maybe I called it wrong maybe I took the wrong drop whatever and just made something happen so when I fast forward to Green Bay, it was the third game. We, we played Minnesota the first game, overtime loss. It was a hell of a game. Mikowski played great. The next week we go to Tampa. I think he stayed out. We went down two days ahead of time. He stayed out a couple nights and he played like it. He sucked. And I ended up getting in the game. We were down like 38 to three. And so you can't really put my stock into that game the next game we played Cincinnati and that's the game he gets hurt I think it was second quarter and so we're still in this game and much like the Tulane game 
I knew th this really, I, I knew after the Tampa game that Mikowski would start again. But I knew that this was my chance to, to either make it or break it. So it's very similar to Tulane. I went in with little to no reps. I played the week before, but different setting. We were, we were not going to win that game the, the previous week. This one we had a chance to win, and a lot of it would hinge on how I played, if not all of it. And uh, they blitzed me every snap, which was smart, except for the last drive. They played very cautious and allowed me to just kind of play. I didn't have to worry about blitzes and all that stuff. I could just play. And uh, I think after that game, my thought was it couldn't have gone any better, even though I knew there was a lot of things I had to clean up. But I really felt like, I, didn't, I really felt like Mikowski, to be honest with you, was not as hurt as he let on. I, that was my gut, that he was playing bad, the crowd was booing him, and it was a way to kind of get away from that and let me play, and they find out that, hey, Don isn't so bad. Because I was raw, and he had to believe, just like most people, this guy's, I mean, he can throw it hard and far, but he don't have a chance. And, um, which would have been, you know. Good bet. Yeah. But it, it didn't work out that way. No, it didn't work out that way. And Brett Favre recalling with almost immediate visceral detail what happened to him all the way back when, when he was at Southern Miss. And he played his first game against Tulane. And recalling with similar detail his real opportunity in the NFL under very similar circumstances. And when we come back, we continue with Brett Favre, one of the NFL's greatest all-time quarterback, telling his story in his own words here on Our American Story. return to our American stories and Brett Favre's story in his own words. Let's pick up where we left off with Green Bay's then backup quarterback Brett Favre getting the win after replacing an injured Don Mikowski in week three of the 1992 NFL season. Here's Brett. And really kind of my career is kind of a reflection of that game. A lot of good, a lot of wins, but a lot of you know, what, what are you doing? But fortunately, there was a lot more goods than there were bads. But yeah, you know, Aikman and I are big buddies and he said, you know, I guess it's Wally Pip. Does that name sound familiar? I've had more people bring that name up to me. Mikowski is Wally Pip, got hurt, 
went out thinking I'll be back they'll be wanting me back before you know it and 20 years later he's still waiting but I think you know like I tell people one of the things I think that served me well early in my career was being naive and I, I'm, I say that because the latter part of my career, say the last five, six years, I'd been around the block of more than half the team combined. But as a 15-year veteran or above, I knew what we were up against. I knew if this guy could play or this, or when, when a play was called, did it have a, I mean, they all have a chance. But, and I started thinking that way rather than being 22 and not giving it to be honest with you. Just bring them on. So, not that the latter part of my career I didn't play well, but I, I, I spent more time worrying about things I couldn't control. But I, you know, I, I say that because in 20 years, most professional athletes don't play whatever it is for 20 years. You know, I went from barely shaven to gray hair. I mean, complete gray at 30. And the way I played and the life that I lived throughout the things that we talked about earlier, the adversity, you know, just different. But, it, but I was still playing the same game. And how quickly it went. My first year I was in Atlanta and I went out to eat. I was just trying to find my way. No one cared who I was. I was just another guy. Much like I would have been, not so much at Green Bay because I was traded for a first round pick. So there was already kind of a, an air of, because traded for a first round pick is basically like being drafted in the first round. But, uh, in Atlanta, I was a second-round pick. Landville hated me for whatever reason. I really don't know. The starting five offensive linemen were all 32 or above, and one of the one of the tackles was a guy named Mike Ken, who was my rookie year was 38 or nine, and he was one of the guys that went out to eat with us. And I remember him saying, "How, how old are you?" I said, "I'm 21." He said. That was 18 years ago when I was 21, and how fun those days were. And, he, and I said, how old are you? And I, I think 38, 39. Been playing 18 years. And I was like, geez, that's old. I, I didn't say that, but I was thinking that. And then fast forward, I would have guys, how many years is this for you? I'd say, this is year 19. And like, oh, my God. Uh, it would. I would go back to flashback to the, and I'm like, where did it get? Where did it go? Which can be said the same in life. The older you get, I'll never forget sitting on my mom's lap as a kid. Couldn't tell you how old I was. And we were talking about, I don't know if it was my birthday coming up or whatever. And she was in this recliner. We were kind of rocking. And she, I said, well, when's your birthday? She said, my birthday doesn't matter. And I said, 
all birthdays matter. She said, when you get my age, they come a lot quicker than you want and you could care less. And I thought to myself, no way. And she was right. She was right. Before you know it, man, another one. I think I said this in my Hall of Fame speech. I, I talked about this. The only time in, in our life that I heard my dad say something. Now, of course, it wasn't to me. But after fo football practice, it was my dad and three other coaches, and they had been together forever. So after football practice, everyone would leave, and they would watch film and do whatever. I had to stick around. So I'd do whatever. Sometimes just lay outside in the locker room. And as I said then, I say the same thing now. I don't know exactly how I played the week before. We didn't throw a whole lot. But I, I assume I didn't play very well. We probably lost only because I overheard him say, well, I can tell you one thing. My son will redeem himself. He'll play much better. I can promise you that. And I was like, geez. And that was kind of, I, I like to write it off as that, that generation. I, and I'm assuming this. I, I don't know. But I, I assume he felt like if he gave compliments that I would let off the gas a little bit. And maybe there's some truth to that. Not with me, but with a lot of kids. Because the way he coached me and the way he handled me would easily turn other kids off. Then and now. Like, screw it, I won't even play. It happens all the time. And that's the way he was with me. But probably why I succeeded as far as athletics and my two brothers played but they I don't know I mean I think they loved it but I don't think they loved it like I did you couldn't place any more expectations or any higher than I placed upon myself so my dad would often say you need to do this you do that I was already doing it even if I was doing it he was going to tell me you need to run more bleachers. I was already running them. So rather than turn me off, it motivated me. It always motivated me. And I used that later in my career. And it was a, it was a self-discipline thing. So like every year I'd come back for training camp. And there would always be a new quarterback in there, even if he wasn't drafted. Maybe just been a, I would talk myself into believing that they were trying to find the next guy to replace me. And so I would play every play in practice as if it was a Super Bowl. And I would think, I would always joke around and goof off in practice, but I think if you were to go back and ask any coach that I played for what I was like in practice, and they would say, well, he's a lot of fun. But I was competitive. Every throw mattered. Every, every play mattered. I wanted to win everything I did, every play, every practice. And and that goes back to my dad in, in a twisted kind of way. And you're listening to Brett Favre, and you're listening to him unfiltered, raw, about his life and moving from point to point in a beautiful way the way we all do when we're talking to friends and family. We don't do the big edited pieces here on Our American Stories. We like to get you what it will be like sitting down with Brett, because that's what we do. We sit down with folks. We let them talk. And we get ourselves out of the way. 
My goodness. What he was saying about his dad reminded me of mine. He knew how to push my buttons. He rarely said I love you and was rarely saying encouraging words. But I didn't know many dads back in the day who did much of that. It didn't affect me. I knew my dad loved me. I never didn't think it for a minute. But my goodness, he pushed my buttons and I was mad at him a whole lot. And always trying to prove him wrong. And always I knew he was trying to get the best out of me. When we continue... More of Brett Favre's life story in his own words here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and Brett Favre's life story in his own words and that's what we love to do here on this show is bring you real life stories from the people who live them. Let's return to Brett. My daughter walked in here right now and we, we, just the two of us I'd, I'd probably ask her if she worked out or she did something and she's like geez dad really? And then my, my wife will say why you gotta that's I'm a lot like my dad, but rather than t- turn me off, it 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 would piss me off, but it would it motivate me and drive me. Oh, like I'll show you, I'd do twice as much just for the hell of it. And I think that that drive definitely wasn't statistics going into college that got me there. It was really by, by luck that I got a scholarship. A couple of guys chose to go elsewhere. The, the coach that recruited me wanted me bad. Felt like I could play, but he, he couldn't get convinced the, the head coach because there was no film. Like, there was film, but I want to see him throw. But definitely, once I got to, to the pros, I mean, it was... You, I was not going to be denied. I was confident, but I wouldn't say cocky in any. Some may have thought that, but I, you know, Aaron comes across as cocky, so very cocky, and he is. But I was more. I'd put the work in. I knew that I wasn't the tallest. I wasn't the strongest. Although I, I thought I was, wasn't the quickest, but I was, I was going to do whatever it t- took to, to, to win a game, and, and it didn't have to be throwing, it could be running, it could be blocking, it could be tackling. Now that definitely goes back to high school, because I played, I played a non-glamorous quarterback position, I handed it off all the time, pitched it, played defense, punted. Did you try to talk your dad into letting you throw? Oh, yeah. He, he said, you let me coach and you play. And I'm, I'm being a lot really polite. <laughs> it was a lot harsher than that. <laughs> yeah, I rides back in the little Dodge D50 truck coming from practice home. Was uh, There was never like, 
I tell people this all the time. And I, I say it jokingly because I it, it it would be funny. Like if we were driving home, there's about a 15 minute drive. If he were to say, "Son, how you doing in school?" I'd have passed out. Or if he said, "Are you uh, you making good grades?" And if if I said, "Yeah, good. I'm proud of you," I would I'd have shit my pants. Or, how's it going with Deanna? Are you guys okay? I'd have jumped out of the truck. I'd have been so it'd been so awkward. He was, and and Deanna knew my dad as well as I did because she took driver's ed under him. And she she if she were here, she would say, "I could see through the harshness." And she probably could, but she would also agree that everything he did was. And how he said it, or or spoke, or related, he would scare you. So, like, if you were in here and he walked in, he, he's gonna say something. You're like, "Holy, shit, who is that?" And that's how he talked to you. It was always loud, and even if he wasn't mad, you it just he came across that way. He just didn't ever sit down and. How's it going? What the hell? What? How, that's how it was. So, what's what's it like from going? To you know what? I don't miss it at all. I don't. I, I thought I would. I was. I was really. I was nervous about what the next phase of my life would be like, because that's all I knew. And I think part of me coming back. A couple of those times was this if I leave it's over and I, I did really want to come back and play the last four years um, I just didn't love it as much but I, I still loved it enough to give it a shot so depending on what what time of the off season you you got me, I'd be like I had enough. And then it got closer. It's kind of like school growing up, you know. Couldn't wait to get out of school, and then by the end of the summer, you're like oh, I'm kind of ready to go back. That's kind of the way I was. But when I finally did retire in the following season, opening day, I was outside doing something. And Deanna sent me a, sent me a message. Said, "Hey, Minnesota's on." And I thought to myself, "I'm gonna go in and check them out." And I sat right where you were, and I watched like two or three series. Got me something to eat, and then I walked outside, went back doing what I was doing. And I thought to myself, "I am so glad I'm not there." And, and the reasons which probably shock you the reasons that I was glad I wasn't there is because I didn't want to have to get on the flight fly all the way back from San Diego and get home late not to mention I don't even know if they won or lost but I, I just if I knew that every game was going to be a 21-0 route us win it would have made it easier to go back I just got tired of the stress so you know, I, I wake up, some days I have something planned, but most days it's like I go, 
that's caulk. I've been caulking this expansion joints in the driveway for like a week. Deanna's like, what are you doing? And I spent four hours today caulking and leaves blowing in it and I'm trying to pull the leaves out and just but I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying myself. Some days it's something breaks or something it's, it's a pain in the ass but you know I, I got something that keeps me busy I enjoy we like this right now is volleyball season so this past weekend we're in Covington Louisiana for a tournament now we go to LSU for one this weekend and the following week we go to Gulf Shores and I mean we love it we don't miss a game we there's no reason for us to miss a game uh, we're, we're definitely involved Our grandkids will be let's see the middle one's playing baseball so he hadn't started playing yet he's took him to the batting cage last week so we're we're involved with them they live nearby yeah a couple miles away oh, nice. so we we see them pretty regular we just been moving them into a new house i said we me and deanna's probably done most of the work the kids are obviously too young to to do anything but I tell Deanna, so we got no one to blame ourselves, but like you and Alex, my son-in-law is a great guy, and he's a great dad, and he does. He's like Mr. Mom. He, Brittany's kind of it's kind of like a role reversal. Um, they start crying, they go to him, but they can't do to chew gum and tie their shoes at the same time. And moving them into a new house, and the old house was nice, but they just go over there and like the, you couldn't see the kids. The grass was so high, you know. And I'm like, cut the grass. Well, guess who ends up cutting the grass? Me. Because if I, if I wait, it's not going to get cut. I'm hoping that they'll they'll do a better job, but. Let me tell you, my dad wasn't a perfect parent, but we were working when we were kids. And even when there wasn't, I can't tell you how much firewood we we cut and we stacked and never used in South Mississippi. How many times you used firewood? I think he just did it for the hell of it. Man, I can't tell you how many times I did that. And he'd stack wood on me, and I'd have to go tear it, carry it. My three grandsons, I tried to get them to do that. They'd look at me like I was stupid. Yep, whose fault is that? It's, it's the parents' fault. Yeah. Look, every spanking I got was well worth it. I deserved every one of them. And probably the ones I didn't deserve, I needed anyway. And it didn't do me no harm. But nowadays, you can't even spank your own kids. They'll call DHS on you. Oh, yeah. Well, I call DHS. My dad would. He said, you, "You'll call DHS my when I'm done with you." <laughs> and you've been listening to Brett Favre in his own words: "Drive, not statistics, got him into college. I wasn't the tallest. I wasn't the strongest. I wasn't the quickest. But I would do anything to win the game." But there was a sense of relief of getting off that treadmill, too. 
Again, if every game had been 21 to nothing, no big deal. But at a certain point, after trying to retire a few times, it finally settled in. I'm so glad I'm not there. You've been listening to Brett Favre. And by the way, this is just part one in our five-part series with Brett. In the forthcoming parts, we'll hear him get very personal about his family, his struggles with substance abuse, his faith, living and playing in Green Bay, and that miraculous Monday night football game following his dad's death. Brett Favre's story, a great Mississippi story, a great sports story, a great American story, here on Our American Stories. stories and we love hearing stories from our own home state we do something about this state too and there are not a lot of stories about mississippi out there in the country and we broadcast from oxford mississippi a small town about an hour south of memphis the home of william faulkner the home of Ole miss so many other great writers john grisham morgan freeman lives nearby and we are happy to call this place home and Randall Haley has shared one of her stories with us before, and it was called Juking in the Delta with My Old Man, and it was beautiful. She's from the Delta, but lives in Oxford now, and while she loves her new home, she misses her old one. Here's Randall Haley. There are three things that Oxford did best. In 1995, a young woman full of ambition and determined to celebrate the food, music, and art of Oxford, Mississippi couldn't be deterred from the idea of a festival on the square. I knew it would work. Now, I don't know if that's just because I was young and naive, didn't know enough to know it might not work, or I'm bad about thinking I can make whatever happen. Once I decide, I'm like, yeah, we're going to make it happen. Robin Tannehill was hired in June of 1995 to be the director of the Oxford Tourism Council, which is now called Visit Oxford. Tannehill immediately began work on her first project. 22 years later, that project has become one of Oxford's most celebrated weekends, bringing over 60,000 tourists to the square. For a weekend that all started with the idea of a young, naive woman, it's safe to agree with Tannehill and say, Double Decker Arts Festival has become just as big as a home football game weekend. So what is Double Decker to me? Well, I was born and raised in the heart of the Mississippi Delta. Of course, I live and work in Oxford, and it's most certainly my second home. But there's just something about the Delta that makes a person proud to call it his or her own. My love for Oxford comes close to that of the Delta, but there are two distinctive lifestyles that, despite the proximity and distance, cannot compare. For a country girl like me, Oxford culture was more comparable to city life. Even though Oxford is considered a small town in every sense of the word, I was so blinded by the rich culture in Oxford when I moved here that I thought, Oxford is huge. In reality, there's no more acreage in Oxford than there is in my hometown of Clarksdale. It felt so big because Oxford has about five times the amount of restaurants and places to shop. And the university, of course, which has me praying for summer traffic on Jackson Avenue most of the time. 
but it was the ambiance that revolved around an artsy culture that caught my attention. It was one I could relate to. I was no stranger to the artsy type. My heart beats to a blues rhythm 99% of the time. What I wasn't accustomed to were buildings on almost every plot of land on the square, with no space between them. I was used to empty parking lots and grain bins, if anything. And after driving up the hill toward the square on Jefferson Avenue, thinking it would use every drop of gas in my gas tank to make it up the hill, I realized how much I really loved the flatlands. After all, the biggest hill I ever saw in the Delta was the man-made levee. However, despite all of its differences, I found a piece of that culture I loved, a true Delta aura at the Double Decker Arts Festival in Oxford, Mississippi. While roaming the square, I caught the scent. Lee Margaret Hamilton of Greenville, Mississippi sat in her chair scanning card after card as the line grew outside of her booth. The crowd couldn't get enough of her So Delta candles. With scents such as blues, sweet tea, and cotton rope, I could smell home within yards of the booth. When Hamilton began So Delta Candle Company in 2009, she wanted to produce a Mississippi manufactured product that would capture the Delta in all of its essence. The smell, the sight, the sound, and the culture. She used the purest soy wax she could find and voila. People from across seas, celebrities, everybody and their mama were ordering these original candles. Actress Laura Dern's assistant gave Hamilton a phone call one day and she said, we want to buy them for ourselves and we want to buy some to give as gifts. She bought some for actresses Mary Steenburgen and Reese Witherspoon and asked to have them sent to her by the next day. She wanted them in California in time to enjoy the sweet smells while getting dressed for the Oscars. Hamilton hurried to have them sent immediately and said, when Hollywood calls, you have to answer. Sending candles to Dern, Steenbergen, and Witherspoon was a memory Hamilton will forever hold on to, but their most rewarding sale to date was the shipment that made its way to Afghanistan. After an order was placed online, Hamilton read the zip code and found that an American soldier was ordering candles from her. He ordered Mississippi and Cotton Row, Hamilton said. I just kind of put everything into perspective and thought, gosh, this guy really misses home to be ordering candles that are indicative of his homeland. And that really touched me. What I'm doing, people really love and appreciate. They're so connected. That Saturday on the square, I felt I could relate to that man who missed home. Sure, Oxford is lovely and everything it has to offer, but that one scent that makes you stop dead in your tracks to take another whiff, that one scent that reminds you of where you came from, who you are, and what you'll be, puts you in a trance where all you can say is, So Delta. And beautiful job, as always, and I think we'll be hearing more from Randall. And we've got voices now coming from all over the country, from Boston, from Southern California, Los Angeles, and from little towns. Uh, Someone from Des Moines is about to start helping us with their state fair. And WHO, a big, big signal in the middle of our great country, loves the show. We're hearing great things in Boston. And if you've got a story, send it to us, ouramericannetwork.org. You hear how we do it. It's your voice. We don't change it. We don't mess with it. We just share it. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Sign up for our newsletter. It's free, and we'll send you the best five stories, the very best five stories of the week in transcription form and audio. 
Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Randall Haley's story, her Delta story, the homesick blues, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and our next story comes to us from our own Monty Montgomery and Patrick Foster, an automotive historian, on the history of the classic car company, Studebaker. In 1852, the Studebaker Corporation was founded by five blacksmithing brothers in the city of South Bend, Indiana. It was a big corporation. You know, it was one of the biggest corporations in America. And for, you know, a long time it was a a small business, but they built horse-drawn wagons. And they grew to become, at one time, the the largest wagon maker in the country. And their products were sold all around the world. And and they, you know, became very wealthy men and quite successful. What happened with uh, a lot of producers of horse-drawn vehicles, uh, when the horseless carriage came out, they were not quite certain what to do with it. They began producing electric cars in 1902, and when it finally became obvious that gasoline cars were going to be pretty much the standard mode of of transportation, they contracted with another company and started offering gas-powered cars, Studebaker Garford. They kind of dipped their toe into the automobile business until, oh, I think it was about 1915, they started producing their own gasoline cars, you know, from a Studebaker design, and because of their fame, you know, they became successful. They did all right until the Great Depression, and then they, they went bankrupt for a while. And uh, I get criticized by Studebaker people who, who say they were not actually bankrupt, but they were bankrupt then. But luckily, they, a couple of managers came along and were able to get the company out of bankruptcy and, and rebuilt it. It was a new company that came out of the ashes of the old one. And the largest change for Studebaker was finally attempting to compete with the larger automakers by producing something a bit more affordable to the average American. And they eventually got into the lower price ranges in 1939 with a car called the Champion that was uh, very successful. It's big. It's new. It's the big news in the low price field. The big news Studebaker. Look at it. The Champion was a really remarkable car. It it, it came out for 1939. Studebaker put a lot of effort into it. You see, part of the problem, the biggest problem that the independent American automakers had is trying to compete with the big three, with Ford and Chevy and Plymouth. They've got volume that gives them low prices and gives them more than low prices, uh, low amortization. And that means... Take in the case of Ford, if you're building a half a million cars a year or a million cars a year or two million cars a year, 
and you have to buy a page of advertising, well, you can spread that cost over two million cars. If you're Studebaker, that page of advertising costs you the same amount of money, but you can only spread it over maybe 100,000 or 200,000 cars. So your cost per vehicle tends to be higher, not because the parts are more are higher, but your overhead is higher. So the champion was an attempt to break out of that by coming up with a with a really high volume car. And to do that, they had to be smart with their costs. And they were. They built the car to be a little bit smaller than the big three cars, just a little bit, but in a design that retained almost the same interior space. And the car was lighter, so it would cost less to produce because automotive costs at those times were figured by the pound. It, it allowed them to come out with a car that was good-looking, roomy, competitive, price-wise very competitive, performance-wise very competitive, and yet got better fuel economy. So they, they had an advantage over the others. They could match them with roominess and ride and handling and performance and price. Studebaker did extremely well with it. Uh, you know, it, it helped rebuild them in, in the post-war era. And by the 50s, they were really competitive with the big three. They were the, the largest volume of the American independent car companies by far. But trouble was on the horizon for Studebaker and the other independent car manufacturers. 1954 was the most competitive year in car sales, probably in, in the history of the auto industry. Henry Ford II had recently taken over his grandfather's firm, and he was itching to take on Chevrolet. And he announced, I believe it was 1953, that he was going to outsell Chevrolet in 54 or kill the company trying. And what he did in late 53 into 54 is he ordered up more production from his factories and ordered that those cars be shipped to dealers whether the dealers had ordered them or not. So if you were a Ford dealer in South Bend, Indiana, and you ordered 20 new Fords for the month, you might get 40 of them along with a bill. And you could either pay the bill or give up your franchise. You know, there was no messing with Henry Ford II. So, you know, most dealers said, okay, well, we're going to pay for the cars and we're going we're gonna to sell the heck out of them. And they started cutting prices like crazy, advertising like crazy. And the result was Ford sales skyrocketed. Well, Chevrolet wasn't going to take that sitting down, so they did the same thing. Even Plymouth got in on it. So you've got the, big, the three biggest automakers in the world fighting it out tooth and nail for every sale. And I mean, they did dirty things that are actually illegal. They did this practice called bootlegging where they would take brand new cars and run them through an auction as used cars just to get rid of them, just to get a little bit money back and you know be able to stay in the game. Against that, Studebaker, Nash, Hudson, Packard, they just couldn't compete. And sales just dropped like a stone. So the little automakers, the independent American automakers, started bleeding money. Nash ended up purchasing Hudson Motor Company, and they formed American Motors. And Studebaker and Packard merged with each other. They did it so quickly, they didn't do due diligence. When you're doing a merger, you have to do what's called due diligence, where A looks at the books of B to see what sort of profits and losses they're making and what their overhead is, and B looks at the books of A for the same reason. This way, you're going into this marriage with both eyes open. Well, Studebaker and Packard were so 
desperate to merge with each other. And also, I think both of them were afraid of what the other one would think of their, you know, their their ledgers. That they didn't do due diligence. They just said, "You tell us how much, you know, what your overhead is and how much your profit and loss is for the last year, and we'll do the same for you. And we're not going to check each other's books." And both sides lied like rugs. So the upshot was about three months after they merged together, they discovered they were losing money by the bucket load. They were bleeding. I mean, it was it was unbelievable how much money they were losing. And the head of Studebaker Packard, James Nance, sent、uh, one of his financial people over to South Bend and said, you know, find out, you know, what the problem is down there. And he found out that Studebaker had understated their break-even point by something on the order of eighty or a hundred thousand cars, and、uh, there was just no way they were going to turn a profit for a while. Once they merged, there was no unmerging them. It's really hard to undo a merger, so they were stuck together, and you know it was a rocky road for the next five years. What should have happened, and the whole plan behind it, which was a good plan. Was they were merged together, they would sell each other's products, and instantly they, they, the engineering team would get together and design one car body that could be used by both brands. This is what Nash and Hudson did. It's what Chevrolet had been doing for years. It's what Ford had been doing for years. You know,、uh, a Pontiac is basically a Chevrolet with more trim. So the、uh, Studebaker and Packard. The plan was they would eventually share the same body, and that would cut their overhead tremendously. They would be able to spread their costs over so many more vehicles, and they would be profitable. And it would have worked too, but they just didn't have enough capital to last long enough. And you're listening to Patrick Foster, automotive historian, telling the story of the Studebaker Corporation, and in his own way, telling the story of American history. And American business, commerce, and entrepreneurial activity. And my goodness, when Henry Ford II decides to go all out and compete with Chevrolet, the little guys, the independents, well, they're stuck in the crosshairs. And you had Nash and Hudson merging, and you had Studebaker and Packard merging too. And for all of you car buffs out there, you're loving this story. But for those of you who aren't, and I'm not really a gearhead of any kind, but I just love hearing these stories of how things came to be. There's Studebaker in South Bend, Indiana, the number one horse-drawn wagon company in the country, and all of a sudden there's this thing called the car, and everything changes, and for the better for many. But innovation always leaves some victims behind, and in the end, the story of commerce is not always a pretty and clean one. But in the end, it leads us to the arc of well progress. When we come back, more of the Studebaker Corporation story here on our American Story. Oh, oh, oh. 
And we return to Our American Stories and the Studebaker story. When we last left off, Studebaker was once again on the ropes, but they were about to have a major stroke of luck. They should have gone out of business in 58. It's a miracle that they didn't, but they managed to pull the fat from the fire. They brought out the Lark in 59, and that saved them, you know, for as long as they lasted. Actually, it saved the, it saved the corporation. Hi there. I'm Rex May, and this is the 61 Lark. Well, sure, it's beautiful, but more important, the Lark's got something new. A new kind of performance, a new kind of excitement unmatched in any U.S. compact made today. And the Lark was truly a miracle of a car for Studebaker. Built using existing parts from the Studebaker Starlight, a car which consumers didn't like. They had that 1953 car that they had been pedaling through 58, and basically, because the company had no money and could not afford a new body, they took that 1953 sedan body and they sawed off both ends, they shortened the wheelbase, and came up with very simple styling that stood out. That was the Lark, really. There was nothing new about the body other than the front end cap and, and the rear styling. It was designed on a shoestring and they used a lot of parts that they had been using for years. And and this is the interesting thing. They sold the Lark for more than they had been selling the, the 58 big car. And they were able to get away with it because it was a new concept. This was not some stripped down big car that you would be ashamed to be seen in. This was a compact car. And compact cars were just come, becoming the rage. And in 1959, the dam broke on the compact car market. And Studebaker was, you know, part of it was luck, but part of it was good product planning. And in 1959, they turned in the best year in their history, profit-wise. The car sold like nickel hamburgers. It was amazing. And, uh, and it was a good car. You know, it was roomy for a compact, and they nailed it as far as ride and handling. Gas mileage was very good. It was underpowered, but with the Lark, you could get a V8 engine, and Studebaker had a really excellent V8. And a lot of people, wanted a small car but they wanted power so sales of v8 powered compacts at studebaker at least were, were very good so they, they did all in all they did very well with that car in 1960 studebaker car sales fell because the big three got into the compact market 61 there was a uh, recession in the american auto industry that hit studebaker hard but despite the company struggling, Studebaker was about to release their magnum opus, the Avanti. You know, it's not unusual in the history of automotive companies to bring out a glamour car when you're struggling. The idea behind it is that this is going to be a halo car. It's going to spread a halo over all your products. It's going to be a draw. People are going to, and this was the case of the Avanti, people are going to want to come into the Studebaker showroom to see this fantastically styled new car, and they'll end up buying a, a Lark. So that's that was the plan behind it. And they also thought that they could build enough of them and price it high enough to where they could, you know, they could do the Avanti profitably. They did it with a fiberglass body for two reasons. One, because the Corvette had a fiberglass body. And two, because Studebaker didn't have enough money to pay for the hard tooling to stamp it out in steel. Tooling for fiberglass bodies is cheap. And I think it was one of the best looking cars that's ever been made in America. I, I remember coming out of high school, 
I was a senior and I was uh, skipping class in the morning to go downtown for breakfast. I'll admit that here. And this gold Avanti pulled up to a traffic light at, at the intersection where I was waiting to cross. And I had never seen one before. And my jaw hit the ground. I had never seen anything so dramatic. I mean, in a sea of Ford Fairlanes and Dodge Darts, here is this Avanti. And I didn't know what it was. You know, I, I, I was with a couple of guys, and I said, what is that? And a guy says, oh, that's a Studebaker Avanti. And I, and I was dumbfounded. I said, that's Studebaker? Because, you know, a friend of mine had a Studebaker Lark, and, and <laughs> the Avanti didn't look anything like any, any Studebaker I had ever seen. It was dramatic, and it was supposed to be. And it was a beautiful car. They were well-finished. They were very, very fast. And the shame is that they had so many production problems with them that they never really got it sorted out. I think it took them about two years to finally get it sorted out. And by then, you know, Studebaker was in such bad shape that nobody wanted to buy anything with a Studebaker name on it. And one of the biggest problems for Studebaker was its own union. The problem was the union, they fought tooth and nail for every concession. They struck at the most inopportune times. If you're an automobile union and you really want to cripple a company, you say, okay, we're going to wait till announcement time for the new models and then we're going to go on strike and then dealers are going to have nothing to sell. And by the time we win our concessions and go back to work, you know, the market's going to be gone. And they did that. They did that in 62 and it just devastated the company. They were having a party down there in South Bend. They had college guys that were, were on the payroll who were not actually working. There was one guy who was is typing his college theses in the bathroom. There were stuff that uh, a good management doesn't allow to happen. After the, the strike in 62, the company never really recovered. For some reason, I don't know if the, if the buying public just gave up on them, but car sales just all of a sudden went off the cliff. And the company was still building cars Good management tells you you don't build a car without an order. That's been, you know, like a like a watchword in the industry from, from day one. But they wanted to keep the assembly lines going, so they were building cars that they had no orders for. And then at the end of the month or at the end of two months, they'd have this huge stockpile of cars all over the place, all around South Bend, in fields with weeds growing up to the doors, all getting sunbaked, and they would have to call their dealers up and say, here, we got a special deal on, you know, take 10 cars and we're gonna knock so much money off of that. The, the company was losing money. That was it, they ran out of money, they had to close down and they announced it just before Christmas, 1963. While the company would continue to build cars in Hamilton, Ontario until March of 1967, the closure of the plant in South Bend had a devastating impact on the community. There was actually a book written on, on the effect of the closure of South Bend. And there was, you know, there was increased suicides, alcoholism, depression, family breakups, because, you know, thousands of people lost their jobs. And the biggest employer in South Bend, you know, was gone. So it was very tough for the human element, the, you know, the, the public. But the town itself got together, businessmen, and they worked hard to help people find jobs, to lure new industries in, to do everything they could to help the workers that were displaced by this loss. And uh, I think 
South Bend is probably a better place now than it was, you know, back when Studebaker was there. I'm, it's been a few years since I've been there, but uh, I, I think overall they've done better. One thing I do really uh, appreciate is that the uh, city itself has embraced its automotive heritage. They have an outstanding museum, uh, the Studebaker National Museum. And, um, you know, they, they have uh, gatherings of Studebaker enthusiasts every year. And it's, it's really, you know, they don't try to bury the past, they celebrate it. And that's the way it should be. This is, this is American industrial history. And, you know, good or bad, we should recognize it. And that's what we do here at Our American Stories every day. We don't try and bury the past. We celebrate it. And that's the good, the bad, and everything in between. You've been listening to Patrick Foster, automotive historian. Great job, as always, to Monty Montgomery, our in-house Hillsdale grad, bringing us another really fine story. This one about American automotive history. And in the end, American manufacturing history, which is, in the end, a really important part of American history, telling the business story of this country. Well, it's telling the story of this country. And my goodness, what an impact the closing of this plant had on this small town, South Bend, Indiana. It was devastating. What had given life to the town ultimately took some life away. The museum is still there, though. Go visit the Studebaker's story here on Our American Story. American stories. And now we bring you the story of an American artist whose fuzzy afro and calming voice grace TV sets not only from coast to coast, but around the world from Muncie, Indiana. Here's Jesse Edwards with our look into the life of Bob Ross. If you mention the name Bob Ross around a baby boomer, they're likely to have fond memories growing up listening to his soothing voice while watching his educational painting show. Despite the fact that he died over 20 years ago, if you mention Bob Ross to a teenager, they're likely to be just as knowledgeable. Then there's everybody else in between who doesn't know Bob Ross because you're either not old enough to remember him the first time around or young enough to know about his recent viral comeback. Hello, I'm Bob Ross, and I'd like to welcome you to the 21st Joy of Painting series. If this is your first time with us, let me extend a personal invitation for you to drag out your little paint brushes and some paints and, and paint along with us each show. And who hasn't sat around on a lazy weekend afternoon and watched the great Bob Ross do his thing on public television? Or just, just drag up the old easy chair and enjoy a relaxing half hour as we play some of nature's masterpieces on canvas. The mild-mannered, soft-spoken painter had a special ability to put his viewers into a trance-like state as we watched him paint his happy little trees and his beautiful landscapes. Now then, <clears throat> let's decide. Maybe there's a happy tree, evergreen tree. He lives right there. Start with just touching the canvas. Use just the corner of the brush, just the corner, and begin pushing, making the bristles bend slightly downward. See there? Look at that. Isn't that a nice little tree? And he lives right here in this brush. 
All you have to do is sort of push him out. Bob Ross created and starred in The Joy of Painting on PBS, where he taught viewers how to paint like he did using the wet-on-wet technique. His process involved painting his entire canvas in white before he laid down the other oil paints. While some stuffy classically trained artists would say this is cheating, it didn't matter to Bob or anyone in his audience for that matter. We'll go right up to the top of the canvas, and we'll start. We'll just do some little X's, little crisscross strokes, and we'll work all the way across the top. Now the color is continually mixing with the liquid white, and it creates all those beautiful variations that we want. Let me put a little more color on the brush here. And although Ross died of lymphoma at age 52 in 1995 on the 4th of July, he's just as famous now, if not more so, than he was at the peak of his career. There we go. Let's start at the top and work down. And that way, our sky will get progressively lighter toward the horizon. And that's exactly what we're looking for. In a landscape, you want things to get lighter toward the horizon and darker as they can come away from the horizon. His videos have millions of views on YouTube and has over 600,000 followers on Twitch where PBS regularly marathons episodes of The Joy of Painting. That effect happens automatically. You really don't have to worry about it. It it just happens. And that truly is the joy of painting. His soothing voice continues to calm people and his endless supply of inspirational quotes like, There are no mistakes, only happy accidents are more relevant than ever. And see what happens. As you paint, you'll see all kind of things happening on your canvas, and very soon you learn to use all these beautiful little things that happen. We don't, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. One of the first things people noticed about Bob Ross was his trademark afro. But it might surprise some fans to learn that his hair was naturally straight. He chose to get a perm because he thought he would save money by not having to get haircuts. Yet... Ross later regretted the lush curly locks and wanted to change his hair back to its natural state. But by that point, his company had already included Ross's iconic fro for the company logo, and there was no going back. Give him a shake. (laughs) And just beat the devil out of him. Sometimes those brushes get away and they go, zoom, clean the other side of the room. That's when you find out who your friends are. Ross was born in Daytona Beach, Florida, and dropped out of his freshman year of high school to work on construction with his father. In 1961, then 18-year-old Ross enlisted in the Air Force and was put into service as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the U.S. Air Force Clinic at Ellison Air Force Base in Alaska. I spent half my life in the military, and there I I had to live in somebody else's world all the time. And painting offered me freedom. I'd come home after all day of playing soldier and I'd paint a picture and I could paint the kind of world that I wanted. It was clean, it was sparkling, shiny, beautiful, no pollution, nobody nobody upset. Everybody was happy in this world. That may be how I made it through 20 years of military. There we go. Because I could find freedom on this canvas. There's absolute freedom here. And I think we're all looking for freedom. His time in Alaska undoubtedly influenced his later work. It was in Alaska where he saw snow and mountains for the first time, both of which were heavily featured in his paintings. If you've never been to Alaska, you're to go see it. It's almost unreal. I was born and raised in Florida. and was, <laughs> I was almost 20 years old before I ever saw snow. And my favorite uncle, Uncle Sam, 
he sent me up there in January. Thought that would be funny. <laughs> it was funny. I, uh, I got off the plane. The first thing I did was stepped on the ice and fell on my bottom because I didn't know how to walk on ice. In Alaska, they have ice fog. And ice fog occurs normally when it's about 30 below or colder. And it covers everything, everything with frost. It is so beautiful. Trees look like they're in full foliage. It's so beautiful. And the light plays through it. And these, all these little ice-covered frosty things, they act like prisms. And they break up the light. And you see all colors in the trees. In the dead of winter, you can see just, oh, you have to go see it. I can't, can't explain it all to you. So pretty. It's hard to believe that anyone could watch this maestro at his easel and not be tempted to pick up a paintbrush. But the truth is, most of Ross's audience didn't even paint. So why do people watch? Some people just tune in for Ross's welcoming persona and positive musings about life. Others tuned in because it helped lull them to sleep. A fact that Ross was well aware of. He didn't mind. That's the name of the game. It's enjoying really already enjoy what you do in life. If you do, then you'll do a good job. Mm. And I certainly enjoy what I'm doing. I spend half my life doing somebody else's thing. Painting should make you happy. If it does nothing else, it should make you happy. And if it doesn't make you happy, <laughs> you're doing the wrong thing. Because it's fun. And if you can do things all of your life that make you happy, needless to say, you're going to be a happy person. And you know, when you, when you buy your first tube of paint, you get an artist's license. And that license says you can do anything that makes you happy. He tirelessly churned out three copies of every painting that appeared on The Joy of Painting. He kept the first painting off screen and used it as a reference as he worked on the copy that appeared on the show. The final painting was completed after the episode was shot. A photographer would take pictures of these third final copies and the images would appear in Ross's how-to books. I want to get you to try being creative on canvas, just to, to take your time and, and sit down and have nothing in mind when you start. Just have a good feeling and be happy and, and in love with life and your world and, and sit down and begin playing. And if you feel good about yourself and the world, It'll show in your painting, and all these little things will happen. Bob Ross generously filmed 31 seasons of The Joy of Painting, but PBS didn't pay the artistic genius for a single episode. Instead, Ross used the show to market his brand. He made most of his money from his company, Bob Ross Inc., selling art supplies and instructional guides. The company also offered painting classes taught by artists trained in Ross's singular methods. If you happen to get some of it down in here, who cares? We'll end up turning that into... Reflections. We don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. Just don't worry about it. Learn how to use what happens. In addition to being the sleep-inducing master that had the same effect on the brain as Valium, Ross was an avid animal lover. Peapod the squirrel could be found chilling in Ross's shirt pocket as he painted, and sometimes Ross would take a break from painting and bottle feed the squirrel for his audience. And this is how hard it is to get a little squirrel to eat. That's all there is to it. Aren't they the most precious little characters you've ever seen? This is surreal television. Yeah. You could feed them ten times a day, and they'll always be just about this hungry. 
Hey, you know, I have to go to work. Yeah, I have to go to work. Okay? All right. I'm going to set him right over here and let him finish lunch. And since he created those three paintings for each episode of The Joy of Painting, he ended up with thousands of works over the course of his life. Somewhere around 30,000 paintings. And he was practically drowning in fan letters. His popularity and Ambien-like sight effects on viewers caused them to send him up to 200 letters every day. And on several occasions, when a regular fan would stop writing in, Bob Ross would actually call that fan just to see if they were okay. So what happened to all those masterpieces that Bob Ross painstakingly created? He donated them all to public television stations across the country so they could auction them off and keep the money. For Our American Stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Hey, now we can wash the old brush. And if you've painted with me before, you know this is the fun part of this whole technique. We wash our brushes with odorless thinner, shake them off, <laughs> and just beat the devil out of them. And that's where you take all your hostilities and frustrations. And it's a lot of fun. <laughs> there we go. Just have to splash the cameraman one time so he, he doesn't feel neglected. This is Our American Stories. By the way, nothing makes me happier than seeing my wife and my little girl, 13 years old, in front of the smart TV, painting together to whom? To old Bob Ross videos. Bob Ross's story, here on Our American Stories. Great job, as always, by Jesse.